Welcome to Homebase Hope, all about autism, the show that invites you to think differently, inspires you to take a whole child approach, and most of all, instills hope when it comes to your child and autism. I'm your host, Rhiannon Crisp from homebasehope.com.au. Let's get into it. Hi guys, and welcome back to Homebase Hope. I am super excited about today's podcast because we are talking to someone whose resume is just going to blow your socks off. She is an incredible autism advocate and has contributed so generously and so enthusiastically to the autism community. It's a real pleasure and a privilege to have the opportunity to chat to such an inspiring and knowledgeable advocate, and she's all the way from the USA. Today, I have the pleasure of chatting to Joanne Lara. Joanne is a professional dancer turned classroom teacher turned a university professor. She has dedicated her life's work to improving the lives of individuals with autism through music and movement. Her advocacy has led to founding the non-profit organisation Autism Movement Therapy, which offers an energetic and structured approach that stimulates the brain, aids sensory processing, develops communication and motor skills, and addresses behaviours associated with autism. Joanne has a special interest in empowering and in supporting young adults on the spectrum to gain suitable employment. She is the executive director of the not-for-profit organisation Autism Works Now, a program that functions as a mentorship, placement and on-the-job work support program. Joanne is also the author of Autism Movement Therapy Method, Waking Up the Brain, and co-author of Teaching Pre-Employment Skills to 14 to 17-year-olds, Autism Works Now. Welcome, Joanne. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you for having me, honey. It is such a pleasure, and I'm super excited to have you on the show. Um, now, we always start with the journey, and I would love to hear your journey and how it all started and how you became so involved in working with kids on the spectrum. Well, interesting you asked the question. Good question. I started out as an educator, and I was a moderate to severe. In the United States, we separated, specifically in California, our two education curriculums into mild to moderate and moderate to severe. And since I'm in California, in Los Angeles, um, I went about a moderate to severe route, curriculum route. So my credential is moderate to severe education specialist K-12. So I taught in the Los Angeles Unified School System for almost 10 years, students with autism, special day class, if you will. And when I started in the classroom, it was my first year in 2000, so we're almost 20 years ago, I developed a, a music piece to the curriculum. In other words, I was always playing music. If I wasn't giving a direct instruction lesson, I had uh, environmental music, I had uh, Asian music, I had Caribbean music, different music, but no lyrics, always playing in a little CD player at the front of the class. And then I started adding yoga to the class. And then I went to the administration. I said, everybody in my class needs a computer. And this was 2000. And they were like, what do your kids need computers for? They, I mean, they can't, they can't use computers. I said, everyone needs a computer. And at that time, Apple was giving um, away to the education system in this country. The I don't know if you remember them, but they were like the blue and the um, the pink bodied kind of you could see through the back of the computer with a little computer monitor screen. Um, and I said I'll take uh, ten of those. And what I did was program those each each computer for each student to where they were in their level of reading, uh, language arts, and math. And I used a program that they don't use much anymore today, but it was used widely then called Reader Rabbit Series. And it was an animation series with a little rabbit that would jump on screen, deliver the directorial, and, and jump off. And I found that the kids were really, it became very clear to them what was expected of them, which is why our kids love computers. I'm sure everyone knows that. They're not confused about what, what's expected of them or where the information's coming from. It's all coming from one place right in front of them. So fast forward to my student who came to me uh, rolling on the floor and stimming on the lights with no language, left two years later. 
speaking, will you be going to middle school with us? No, Jose, but uh, you've got my email and I have your mother's number and you have mine. We will miss you, Miss Laura, to assisting in general ed classrooms because that was the beginning of the inclusion movement here in the United States. And I said, bingo, it's all about the movement and the music. And when I transition out of the LA Unified School District, I'm going to develop a program, which is what I did. And that's autism movement therapy. That's the beginning of autism movement therapy which is a very structured 45-minute dance class. And the six songs that I license for the class, when I do a certification workshop, you get the six songs that I license. I'm able to, I'm able to give out those songs because I license them. But I picked those songs, and they're all, and they're all from all over the globe. You know, there's French music, there's Bayou music, there's African music. It's very eclectic because I feel that it helps scaffold the brain as you combine it with the movement and the music together. And the brain has to kind of wake up or come to attention. So that's the beginning of autism movement therapy, actually. And the Autism Works Now program evolved because all those kids in that class who were third, fourth, and fifth graders, 15 years later, had transitioned out of the school system in the country, in this country, because they can stay until they're 22 here. 18 to 22 is a transition program for moderate to severe students with disabilities. That's a federal mandate. And when I'd see them, I'd say, what are you doing now? And this would have been a, 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 one of my students who was an incredible artist. I mean, she really, really was an incredible artist. And she ended up being honored in the LA Unified School District for her artwork, but now she was 23 and she had nowhere to go. She was sitting at the back room of her parents' house. And I said, that's not good enough. These kids have to start working. So we launched the Autism Works Now Temple Grandin and Friends event in 2015. And we've come a long way. Look where we are. Three years later, we've got, we're up front and center with, with jobs for our kids. Microsoft is hiring. You know, I'm not going to say it's, it's easy. It's still a battle. We're still trying to get employers to understand that our kids have something to bring to the table, if you will. But we're a lot further than we were three years ago. And a lot of these kids um, and candidates, as we call them in Autism Works Now, um, are working. And I created an actual work program for them called Glorious Pies. And we have a pie truck and we serve pie and coffee. And um, we're on a payroll with Wells Fargo and they get a paycheck. So... We've come a long way. We've got a lot more work to do, but starting with movement and music and moving into work programs has been a, a, a big adventure for me. But I love my work. I love what I do. I love the kids. I love the, the way that they think, um, the way that they see life. And I want other people to be able to see the, uh, the brilliance of, of these little guys, you know, when they're little and when they're grown, uh, the way that they think and the brilliance that they can bring to a job setting. Amazing. You have touched on so many things that I would love to dive further into. Um, but first, before we dive deeper into the autism movement therapy and autism works now, I wanted to ask what inspires you to do what you do? Because it's very obvious that you pour your heart and your soul into this and you're continuing to do it year after year. So what is driving you to do what you do? I'll tell you, I was a, a, a child that was a, taken away by the state in the 50s uh, and, and put in the uh, adoption system, actually. I was on the dole in Georgia and at 10 months of age for destitute and immoral living conditions. And myself and three of my siblings, at that time I found out there were 12 other children, um, and four different fathers, but we were put on a foster farm. And I was eventually adopted at two and a half. So I was walking into my third home at two and a half years of age. And I think that I relate very strongly to the isolation piece that a lot of our kids feel when, when they're desperately trying to make friends in a school setting and reaching out, but they don't have the skill set. They don't have the social skill set. They don't have the tools to do it. Um, I can relate to that. That's, that's the only thing I can really think of because it is a drive and I wake up and I do it every day and I've been doing it for almost 25 years. So I, I really feel that that's it. I feel like I have a connection. Mm -hmm. I have a connection. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I just, I love knowing the backstory and how people 
came to do the work that they're doing. So that's beautiful. Um, well, let's dive into autism movement therapy. Are you able to explain a bit more about what it is and, and why it's so needed? Why do we need this for our kids with autism? Sure, absolutely. Well, what I saw was when I, when I was developing the program, as we talked about prior in the classroom, I saw that when I married the movement and the music together, I got a lot more progress. So if I was asking the student to move and speak at the same time, and if this was a limited communicator, down that I was, and I had music playing, that I was making progress. And I, I, come, I come to it as a dancer. I didn't say that, but I have a BA in dance, and I dance for, I've been dancing for 40 years now, but I dance professionally in New York with um, Louis Falca, modern dancer. I have a BA from University of South Florida in dance. So I know the value of movement in, in music. I know from a personal point of view how it changed my life, the joy of, of, of moving. And I wanted to take that another level and not only say, look, it's not just fun to dance. There is a therapeutic piece to dancing. And I knew that because of ballet, years of ballet. I knew that as much as you wanted to tendu and rond de jambe and omelette and, you know, jeté across the floor, it took years in order to accomplish that feat. So I knew that it wasn't going to be easy, but I also knew that it required the brain to kind of stand up to attention. And I thought, well, this could, be a this, this could be a therapy that could wake up that brain. I'd seen with the, my students early on that the, the, the deficit lie not in the fact that they weren't able to access the lobes of the brain, because I really work with the lobes and the hemispheres of the brain, but that it, the circuits that went to those lobes in order to, order to form higher level thinking skills were not working like a neurotypical brain. So I knew that all the pieces were there. But what I knew what I, what I saw was that they it was like a library that was wasn't al alphabetized. They'd go for retrieving the information and they'd go through the files like through the back, but they couldn't locate them quickly like you and I would. If someone said horse and you start to think of a pasture and somebody says cattle and you think of a calf, you know, that kind of thing. They couldn't make that associative piece, if you will. And that comes from higher level thinking skills. If you're an educator, you know that Bloom's taxonomy, which is a global ideology about the processes and levels of thinking and how you can't go from one to four. You've got to go one, two, three, four before you can get to analytical and deductive reasoning. So I thought, okay, they have to be taken through the steps. So the brain has, but the brain will do that on its own. We don't have to do that. We have to present the platform for the brain to do that. And then the brain will reorganize itself. And it loves to reorganize itself through music. Now, we've seen lots and lots of studies globally of older individuals with dementia and Alzheimer's who, who, who uh, do music therapy and listen to therapy through headphones. And all of a sudden, uh, their memory is coming back. And they're able to... Uh, to uh, process uh, higher level thinking skills and it's through the music so I said knowing what the value of movement and music was hey let's double whammy this let's put the gross motor because our kids our kids suffer from a deficit of gross and um, uh, gross motor and uh, fine motor skills the whole body has to we have to work with the whole body not just the brain we have to work with the whole body and if we present the music in a structured pattern sequences, which I believe is the key, patterns and sequencing, the brain will come to attention. And it loves, the brain loves patterns. It loves patterns and it loves sequencing. So if you continue with a sequence, continue it through a music pattern, and you ask the individual to imitate you, which is the basis of ABA. I'm also an ABA graduate uh, certificate. I also have a, an ABA um, graduate certificate, if you will. Um, I knew that imitation was the basis of applied behavior analysis. And with all that said, when you put all that together, the brain does come to attention. So I called it waking up the brain. And that's how I, form that's how I formulated the 45-minute the dance class. 
Mm. I couldn't agree more with what you're saying. Um, yeah, and basically what you're saying is that the music and the movement in combination can literally, you know, enhance the wiring of, and the connections of the brain because the, the brain is plastic, right? So um, this strategy is effective I suppose not only for kids but also for adults, you know, anyone at any age or stage in life because of this neuroplasticity of the brain. That's right. Right. It's called neuroplasticity, exactly. And, you know, neuro, neuroplasticity, as you, as you say, has been around for years. It's just gone through being not in vogue and then being in vogue. In the 60s it came back in vogue and then it went out again. It was, no, no, the brain is fixed. You know, we thought, we, we talked as though that the brain was fixed for many years. So, in other words, what you saw, saw was what you got. It wasn't until the 80s that we kind of came back in vogue with, no, 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 neuroplasticity. And there's a book by Norman Deutsch. Do you know it? No. The Brain, the brain That Changes Itself. Oh, yes. Lovely. yes. Yep. Lovely book. And he talks and gives many, many case studies of individuals who've had brain injuries, uh, strokes, and, and how they've recovered through different movement of music and um, computerization and all those. But what it is, is it gives you hope that the brain isn't fixed, that the brain is neuroplastic and that it can be changed if we present the correct information to it. But the unfortunate situation is many times with our kids that are moderate to severe or severely impacted, as I call them, they can't seek out the very thing that would help them the most. So it has to be presented to them. And so there's where we, we, for many years, we weren't looking at dance as a, a viable intervention for kids with autism. It wasn't until about 10 years ago when Temple Grandin got on that bandwagon, who, who, who eventually endorsed my program and helped me really spread my word all globally about um, the, the power of movement and music together. But people weren't seeing dance as an intervention. They were, they were like, no, 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 well, you know, I want him to read first. And I would be like, no, this is the bridge. You're not understanding. This is the bridge. No, no, no. That's like, they had the idea that it was like Mrs. Miss Susie Q's dance studio kind of thing. And that, you know, that was, an, that was like a recreational intervention. No, no. We were, I was like, no, no, that's not. So I was one of the first people to, to start speaking up and saying, you know, look, this is a therapy. We're not talking about a recreation for these kids. We're talking about a real therapy that's going to help them to be able to think better. And people, and once Temple said, I think the arts need to be, all the expressive arts need to be available to our kids. They need access for the, all the arts. And got behind endorsing my program, things started to change. So we had movement and music. Then we had theater. Then we had people that were doing martial arts and yoga and surfing and music therapy and everyone now, I mean, it's a given. If you have a small child with autism, three or four years old, parents are seeking out immediately expressive arts for them. But that was not the case 10 years ago. Mm. I, I still think it's not really mainstream, to be honest. I think um, like as a therapy as such, you know, I think a lot of parents are seeking the traditional types of therapy and maybe they will enroll their kid in um, sort of extracurricular. But I still think a lot of the time it's seen as extra, not an essential. Yes, and it's too, it's, it's very sad. I have a number of, I, I know when you emailed me, I was, so, I was like, oh, wow, I love Australia. You're Australia, right? Yes, you have. Yes, right. And I, and I have a number of, if you look on my website, I have a number of people that have been certified with me, but they all came here to the States. I've never been to Australia. Um, I think I have five or six uh, AMT uh, providers from Australia, different area, you know, different, different provinces, you call them, right, in, in Australia. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I'd love to come there and do a certification workshop. And I'm kind of on coming, I'm coming down to the kind of the tail end of, going out and doing certification workshops, um, as it were. I used to do lots. And this year I'm doing, I think, I'm, I'm speaking at Harvard in July, which pinched me. I mean, I was speaking at Harvard about the power of movement and music and the cognitive uh, power of movement and music for people with autism with a cohort of mine, Allie Golding, a little uh, friend of mine uh, who's in London who works with the little tiny ones. Um, and she's fabulous too. She just got a great program going. 
called Movement Works. And we're speaking in Har at Harvard. And then I'm doing a, a certification workshop in New York. Typically do one every couple of years in New York City at the Gibney Dance Center. And then I'll be in Delhi and Bangladesh in um, end of November and December. And I will be offering my certification workshop, a level two. And I'll also be there. This is good for, for people over in your area of the world because it's not that far. Delhi's not that far from you, is it? It's like a 10-hour plane ride. Is that right? Oh, I'm not sure of the flight, how long that would take. It's still a while, yeah. We're pretty okay. far <laughs> Not too Well, it takes me 22. I think it only takes yeah. you about, I think it's only about five hours away, actually, depending on where you are in Australia, I guess. Um, but I'll be with Stephen Chore, Ali Golding, Jane uh, Richardson, who is art therapy professor at Lesley University. Excellent. She works with sand trays. That's an awesome, off, uh, another uh, therapy that's so fabulous for our kids. It's the sand trays that the art therapists work with. Sand, uh, sand trays with Jane and then Karen Howard, a friend of mine who's a music therapist, and Allie Golding. So there's five of us. It's a five-day expressive arts conference. And we're thrilled about that because we're taking that back to Delhi and Bangladesh. And then that's it. I, I, I may in March have another one in LA. I used to do three in LA a year and now I'm down to one. Um, because I'm putting my, a, lot of my, a lot of my energy into the Autism Works Now program and into the Glorious Pies, which is a, is a real work program for these, for these kids. In yeah. terms of the training, so if there are therapists or teachers listening into this or even parents who wanted to um, be trained in the autism movement therapy, I know you have an online course. What, what is that available? Yeah, I have a, a level one that I wrote. It's a real broad stroke about the power, again, like we always speaking about, the power of the intervention of music and movement together, all about the patterns, the sequencing, that's very well worth your while to take. It's a level one, but I've got lots of research studies in that, and it's divided into four units. Uh, I think it's very good. People say it's great. And then I have the certification, which is the 10-hour, 10, 10 two-day certification with myself, and that's five hours a day. Mm -hmm. And then um, Allie in London has a level three of AMT, and that's if you're in her area and you live in Great Britain in that area, she's in the school system, very heavily involved with school systems. Mm -hmm. She goes into all the schools and presents AMT and her movement works, which is for younger children, three to six. And um, you can do an internship with her on a level three. So we have three levels of that, which mm -hmm. is fantastic. It is AMT. amazing. Can I, can I ask you about what improvements you have seen through um, the movement therapy, what have you seen with the kids that you have worked with? What right. We've seen, well, um, immediately, which I wasn't ready for, um, and I didn't know it would happen when I rolled out AMT in 2008, um, parents calling me and saying, my little guys talk. I mean, I would, uh, you know, tears would start like rolling down my face. I was like, really? That's fantastic. And I knew that it had that speech and language potential because I, like the little, the little guy I spoke about at the beginning of the interview, Jose, who rolled on the floor and stemmed on the lights and had very limited communication. Although I knew he had, you know, he, he, I knew he, he had the capability to speak, but he wasn't. And I kicked in speech and language with him, but I thought that could have been a one-off, but it wasn't. And it went, I went on to find out 10 years later that probably the biggest progress is made in the speech and language area and that's because and i figured it out that's because the speech and language area lives on the left side of the brain on the left hemisphere of the brain we know that the brokers and the warnikers live on the left side of the brain those two areas one is responsible uh, for actual articulation of speech speaking and the other is pragmatics the ideas and then expressing them so pragmatics and then actual articulation of speech because speech and language deficit is a criteria for the eligibility of autism, you cannot not have a speech and language deficit or you don't have autism. You might have something else, but you don't have autism. In order to have autism, you have to have a deficit in speech and language, some kind of a behavioral issue 
and a social skill deficit. Those are the three criteria, correct? So you're already, it's already given that the speech and language is impaired if you have autism. Well, we know it lives on the left side of the brain. So what's the issue? The issue is that the bridge between the left and hemisphere of the brain or the corpus callosum is not transmitting information to all our kids into a lesser or greater degree for all of our kids. So what I went about doing was saying, okay, I think we can stimulate, and I, was, and I read report after report, that that bridge, the corpus callosum, that holds the left and right hemisphere together, like when you see a brain and you see one lobe, you see the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere, and you see that piece in the middle, that's corpus callosum, it's like a highway. And that, that wasn't transmitting information from the right hemisphere to the left and the left and the right back again. So our kids had did not have a whole thinking brain approach. They were using mostly their right sides of their brain, and they are using mostly the right side of their brain, not the left. So I said, well, if we can stimulate that area, we should be able to kick in speech and language, meaning if we can get the, the circuits going and the cortical cortex that surrounds those lobes to start doing its job that it knows how to do. You don't have to teach the brain to do that. The brain knows how to do it. That's what the brain was wired for. It's the computer, if you will. It knows what to do if you'll give it the information in order to do it. And if you give it patterns and you give it sequences, all of a sudden it starts doing its job. It's like, it's like you've got you know, one of those barometers that you put on your computer and you do a, like a, a cleanup and all of a sudden and it's showing you that it goes really slow and really, all of a sudden you fix it and it's going bam, 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 bam. Well, that's exactly what happens to the brain. It knows what to do. You just have to present it with the information in order for it to do its job. So going back to how did we look at, how did I look at that? I said, okay, so speech and language started kicking in, but you know, that wasn't the end of it. What happens is when the brain starts doing its job, also all those other deficits start to get better, if you will. So behaviors are a direct result of people not understanding kids with, with, with no language or limited communicators. Kids are, are angry. They can't express their, uh, their wants and their needs. And so the, the, less, the greater the deficit in speech and language, the more behaviors we're going to see. So the behavior started going down. Then the social skills started happening because they had a communication. Really, autism, if you want to just say what autism is, it's a communication problem. That's it. That's all it is. It's a communication problem. And in order to get that give that individual the tools that they need in order to communicate with others, meaning understanding communication. First, you have to understand what communication is used for, for before you're going to talk to anybody. If you don't understand that my, me talking to you, you listening, and you're receiving information from me and I'm receiving information from you, then you're not going to talk. There's no reason for you to talk. So if you don't understand that piece, then you don't talk. So if you begin to start to, again, like the Bloom's taxonomy, build on it, build on what the, first you give the access, the brain, the access to the tools that are going to help it be able to have a whole brain thinking approach. And then the brain's going to start to do its job. When it starts to do its job through patterns and sequencing and repetition and movement and music, gross motor, all the lobes of the brain are starting to work. It starts to wake up come to attention, and the individual starts to benefit from that. Mm. I think that's one of the greatest things too is that speech and language, those communication skills. If we can ad start addressing that through something as fun and playful as music and movement, then, you know, it's, it's just the perfect place to start, isn't it? Um, but it's also we're, we're also looking at like body awareness. So many of the kids that I work with, you know, really have this underdeveloped sense of their body and how it relates to the world around them. Um, it's looking, like you said, at, at the gross motor skills, so the coordination of the body, the balance, rhythm, timing. It's looking at um, are they able to follow directions and can they process that auditory information, their listening skills, um, behaviour, personal space. I mean, the list just goes on. Yes, absolutely. Are you speech and language or you're a, a I'm dancer? I'm an occupational therapist. Oh, you're OT. Okay, OT. Good. Okay, yes, yes. So that's what your, 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 your therapy is built on, studying the gross and fine motor skills of individuals. And you're right. All those deficits, and they, they are deficits, all those deficits, and they're needed in order for a person to be successful. So 
we have to i can't express it any any i mean any uh, any greater than this you've got to start early you need that early intervention if you have a th if you're listening and you have a 3 year old Get that three-year-old to a movement and music program. Get them to a, a music. Uh, get them to a music therapy intervention. Get them to an OT like yourself, a speech and language person. It's a collaborative effort. I don't think there's any one. Twenty years ago, people were looking at like one person that was the fit, you know the shoe that fit all for one child. That's not that's not it any longer. We're looking at so many different mechanisms for autism. I think so many different causes for. Um, autism and and how do we how do we serve those those different groups if you will because there are subgroups I travel globally and I have for the last 10 years um, three times in China uh, I go to Mo Malaysia a couple of times India a lot all over Europe all over this country and what I see is that autism is same all over the globe there's a spectrum and there's severely impacted individuals, and then there's not so severely impacted individuals, and there's subgroups of of autism where that group looks like a heavy metal child or a heavy metal baby, a baby that has too many, too much mercury or aluminum in their body. There are um, children that look like genetic, more just like a genetic imperfection. Um, they have a different look about them and they think differently and their brains work differently. All the, all the different subgroups, I believe, um, you know, they all have the deficits of a speech and language deficit, a, a, a behavioral and some kind of social skill because they, if they fit into the eligibility of autism. But each one of their brains is working differently. So we have to look at that, I believe, and say, okay, you know, what might work for one child doesn't mean it's going to work for another. We know that, and I'm sure you know that from, from your experience as an OT. So it's, it's, it's child by child. Absolutely. Look, I believe wholeheartedly there is no cookie-cutter approach. Like you said, every child is different and presents differently. Um, and I'm a very firm believer in taking a whole-child approach and with that, as you were saying, we really need a multidisciplinary approach. So it's not just music and movement. That is a very important piece, you know, a very important part. Um, but it's a whole combination of things. And I really think um, professionals and um, parents and teachers are, you know, I feel that there's this grassroots movement of more collaboration and I really feel that's needed. Um, I really think we need to work together on this to solve each individual, um, you know, differences for that child um, because I think previously we haven't worked together and everyone's worked in their individual little silos and um, not worked collaboratively. Like everyone has all this information and we're piling up all this OT information and all this speech information and gut health information but no one is or no one was really um, you know, joining that and, and sort of working collaboratively together to um, solve these problems. Absolutely. But I think, like, like you say, that's changing. We're all, we're all now realizing we all need each other and that the child, in order to serve the child, the child needs to be served in so many areas. And we can't all be experts in each of those areas. We need to bring together the expertise that we, in OT, in speech and language, in behavioral uh, therapy, whether it be floor time or ABA or, you know, so, I mean, we have to address behavior, so it has to be addressed. We can't just leave that alone. Um, we, need, we all need each other. We all need each other. And the, more importantly, the child needs us to all need each other. Mm, absolutely. Let's, um, let's head over to the job skills. So looking at the Autism Works now, I'd love for you to go into a little bit more detail as to what you're doing there and, um, how, and maybe how you went from your music and movement to delve into this area. Yeah, well, like I said, um, my students who that I had in third, fourth, and fifth grade in the early 2000s were now transitioning out of the public school system. And as I was seeing more and more of them, 
uh, I did the Temple Grandin and Friends event in 2015, and I brought back some of those very students that had been in my first years of teaching in LA Unified School District in a special day class students with autism. And there I saw they were doing nothing. And there I was putting on a big event with Temple Grandin, honoring Temple, giving her an award and talking about these kids need jobs. We need a seat at the table, a seat at the table. And, I saw, and, and then I saw these very students of mine who were doing nothing. And I said, ah, oh, we've got to develop a program. So we did the Temple Grandin and Friends in, in May of 2015. And by September, I had a class going called Autism Works Now. I, I had an office. I had a partner, Susan Osborne, who also co-authored the book with me, the Autism Works Now book with me. And we started weekly sessions, two-hour weekly sessions. And we, had, we developed the curriculum as we went and the agenda as we went. And it's a eight-month, once-a-week, two-hour program. Now we're rolling out that certification training, and we have one September 14th in Los Angeles. So that'll be our second, our second certification training we've done. And very successfully, we have the book, as you see, it's, uh, or you don't see, it's called um, Teaching Pre-Employment Skills 14 to 17-Year-Olds, the uh, Autism Works Now Method. And in that book, I don't, do you have that book? No, I don't. You need it's that honest. book. Yeah. You need to, let me, I need to send you that book. Um, there's 90 pages of worksheets at the back. So it was developed and written in order to replicate the program. That's our idea is to replicate the program. Now it's harder to replicate a program like a work program because each country has its own rules and regs about labor laws. So what will work in the United States is not the same thing as working in Australia. So, but the essence of the program um, works for everybody globally. And that's, that's what we're really concentrating on heavily now. We're getting a lot of media press on that because we're not only talking about giving kids our job, giving kids jobs. The issue is we want businesses and employers to give our kids jobs and they can't do anything. So we have to go back and I think reevaluate that and say, hey, what's missing here? What are we, where's the big piece that's missing? Why aren't our kids working? 80% of individuals with disabilities and autism are not working, not only in this country, but globally. It's higher in a lot of countries globally. It's 98% in India, I'm sure. Um, it's because they can't do anything. We've got to go back to the school system, in my, in my opinion, and I was on Hillary Clinton's Disability Employment Task Force team for a year, and I got to go up to a whole other level of political, of political work disability programs in this country, in the U.S., and see with very clear eyes where a lot of the big loopholes were, were for working and disabilities. Department of Labor, Department of Rehab, and EdGov weren't talking to each other. And this is the case in many, many countries. Everybody's out there on their own, but nobody's talking about coming together at a big table about how if we all work together, we can make this work for people with disabilities. But we also have to go back, I feel, and we have to present vocational center training. We've got to begin to train individuals to do skill sets that equate to a paycheck. And until we do that, we're going to be spinning our wheels and a wishing and a hoping and asking for people to give our kids jobs. And businesses is a business. They don't want to give people jobs that don't know how to do something and that they have to have a job coach with or they have to bring their mother to work with them. That's, that's not the model we want to present. We want to present an independent, self-determined individual who knows how to go, to go to work either by taking the bus or access, be there on time, do their job, and get a paycheck just like you and me. So we have to stop thinking about work as a charity. We have to embrace it as a piece of our society that has to change and embrace people with disabilities in the workforce. And you're talking about changing an ideology of countries and societies and globally, if you will. Mm, yeah, I think it's so important to give the kids and youth with autism the skills that they need to be successful and building on that. Um, but already they like they they have so many 
um, inherent skills, you know, in them. Um, you know, typically, you know, they've got a lot of excellent attention to detail. They're innovative and they're usually very enthusiastic about what they do. Um, so these are some of the things that we can draw on to, to help them um, be successful in the workplace. Right, absolutely. But they don't, don't all have attention to detail, not all individuals with them. I mean, it's a case by case. Absolutely. So if you do find an individual who has attention to detail and they're great with numbers and you give them an Excel sheet and you go put these, plug these numbers in and they come back two hours later and go done. And the employer goes, wow, that took that, the guy that works with me two weeks to do. Then bingo, you've hit on something. You know, and there are a lot of our kids that can do that. But that's not the majority of our individuals. The majority of our individuals are not Temple Grandins. They aren't geniuses. They fall in a bell curve. Autism is a curve, a bell curve. It's a spectrum. And anywhere on a bell curve is always going to fall at the top, your, your majority. So a majority doesn't follow all the way to the right with the Stephen Shores and the Temple Grandins and all the Asperger's kids or all the way to the left where we have severely impacted individuals. Falls there right there in the middle. And that's the, those are the very individuals who are capable and have, like you say, different splintered skill sets that can equate to a paycheck. But they have to be given a skill set, just like you and I. They have to be given a curriculum that equates to a job and a skill set it's going, someone's going to pay them for. It's not enough to say they're great with detail and hope and a wish somebody's going to go, oh, well, maybe they'll like come work at uh, Atlas and make maps because they're not. Atlas is not going to open the door going, come on in because I heard you were great at skill sets. It doesn't work that way. We're going to have to work a lot harder globally. So this is the next frontier, if you will, for individuals with autism. We're one in 59 in, in this country. Uh, I don't know what the stats are in Australia, but one in 59 kids are being born on the autism spectrum. That's a lot of people 25 years from now. And we can't just go, oh, well, they're, they've got great attention to detail and they really can bring a lot to the workforce and hope that someone's going to give them a job because they're not. Because they haven't done it for the last 25 years, so why would they start doing it then? Such an important point. Thank you for pointing that out. Um, what would be your top tips for preparing youth for the workforce? So for any parents who are out there who are in this sort of um, situation now where their kids might be starting to look for work, what are the best tips that you have for preparation? One, I would say start researching the job area that they're interested in. If you have a kid who loves Thomas the Train, we want to fade that Thomas the Train or carrying that book around or carrying that train around. We don't want to see a 15-year-old with Thomas the Train. It's not age appropriate. Society doesn't embrace that. Peer groups don't want to look at that. We don't have friends when we're 15 talking about Thomas the Train. So what we can do is begin to help our children have a vision for who they are and what their skill sets are when they're little. So if they love Thomas the Train and someone says, oh, look at that. Oh, your daughter. Wow, she's a smarty. Oh, yeah, she's going to go to Harvard. She's going to be an attorney. And this kid, she's going to be an attorney. And what about your little guy over here? Oh, uh, well, he likes Thomas the Train. The child is waiting to hear what the mother says about him or the father says about him. And that, just the way I said that, is the way that usually comes out. Because there's a disappointment in that child. As opposed to saying, he loves Thomas the Train. You know what? We're hoping he works at a train station one day. Bingo, that's what you want. That's the message you want to be sending your kids. You want to be sending your kids that there's a place for them, the message that there's a place for them in the community. And then you have to go about changing the community to make sure there's a place for them. But in the interim, you're advocating. And as they get older, you want them to advocate. I had a woman call me last week. I think stories are very important. I like to listen to interviews on NPR where somebody tells a story. So I like to tell stories. A woman called me. She was, she was probably in her 60s. Her son was, in his, was 22, had transitioned out. She said, oh, Joanne, I'm calling you because, you know, I know you have this work program and I'm so familiar with it and I know you're doing so well and you're in L.A. and I'm in Orange County, which is about 150 miles away. She said, we can't have the program here. We don't have the program here yet. And um, um, I want him to have a job. And he's had a temporary jo job working at the vets. And I, that was great, I said. You know, it was a vet that they went to and knew her and knew him. And she said, but now he needs a real job and he needs a job where he goes every day because I now live in assisted living. 
And this is a story we hear over and over and over again. I live in assisted living and he lives in a residential and he desperately wants something to do. We don't want to give a child 60 years of nothing when they transition out of high school. We need to be giving them hope, not only hope, but real skill sets with, for real jobs that'll equate to a life with dignity. So I said, well, what have, you, what have you been doing? Does he have a resume? And you ask about the, what, what would I encourage parents to do? I would, one, say, encourage your child, or your, even at a young age or a young adult, what do you want to do? Now you want to go about researching that job. So she says to me, well, you know, I called um, Goodwill. Now, the Goodwill is a, gives lots of people jobs here in this country and has for many, many years, and they do a great job of it. And they sell reused clothes and uh, things for the house. I don't think, know if you have Goodwill in, um, in Australia, but it's a, it's a national program here. And they employ a lot of people with disabilities. And she said, but I, I called Goodwill for him. I said, whoa, 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 you called Goodwill? Uh, yes, I called and I said, were there any job openings for my son? And I said, and what did they say? She said, why are you calling and not him? And I said, exactly. Why are you calling and not your son? You see, we have to teach them the skill sets to go get the jobs on their own. That requires a lot of curriculum teaching. A parent can't do all of that which is why we need more and more programs like the Autism Works Now program to be rolled out globally. They need to research a job that they want. I mean, that's easy. Go to Google. Most of our individuals are really good on Google. We teach everything on Google Docs. All of our candidates during each session on a Thursday night from 6 to 8 have a Chromebook. We work with a projection of, Google, of the uh, overhead projection of online. They all have it. The first thing they have is an email. You can't have a job without an email. So they have a Gmail. We give them a Gmail. Then, they, then we start building their resume. You should only have a one-page resume. You shouldn't have five pages of volunteer. You should have a one-page, very concise, that says exactly what that individual skill set is, what they want to do, and what they have done already. Number three, they have to be the person that goes and, and figures out where they want a job. These days, everything is applying online. So you have to go online, apply for the job, and then do a follow-up if you can. We teach follow-up emails, how to, if you go in for an interview, when, you know, how do you dress? Uh, how do you get there? When you, should you arrive? We do mock interviews with cameras, on-camera mock interviews, and then we sit back down as a group and show those interviews to the individual to let them see what they look like in an interview process. And everybody, everybody contributes. We start with a positive behavior support with, wow, what was something great that Sean did at that interview? Well, he looked the individual, the, the woman in the eye, that's right, he did. He, he continued to be able to have a conversation uh, without stopping. Oh yeah, that was great, yes, yes. All right, what was a skill set or a challenge? Well, he kept pulling at his hair. Yes, that was true. He, he did look down a lot uh, and, and started uh, folding the paper in front of him. Yes, he did. Well, those are not going to get you a job. So you got to go back to the drawing board and say, we've got to teach them. You ask for four. Be able to research a job you want to do, build a resume, begin to go out and and get interviews for the job that you want, and then how do you conduct yourself at the interview? Those would be the four talking points, I would say, are the most important. Mm. And I think what you said there that really resonated with me was empowering the kids to do it themselves. Um, because so often it, it's just so easy, you know, it's just easier almost to um, apply online for them. Um, but if we can empower them with the skills and enable them to do that and, um, like you said, practice and everything, mock interviews, I think that's, you know, brilliant. I think that's what every parent should be doing with their child um, just so that they have that level of comfortableness um, and they are empowered and you can have that feedback and, you know, they, they're practicing in that safe environment at home before they get to the real situation um, is so important. And you also mentioned in there um, about the resume and you said, you know, don't list all the volunteer places. 
And that just um, triggered something in me that for parents who are unsure of what to put on their resume, on their kids' resume, when they're talking about um, resume, that if they don't have a previous job, you know, looking into volunteer work is a, is a great place to start, isn't it? That is. And, you know, Temple, I speak a lot with Temple when, uh, on, on, on jobs, when called for, when she goes out and there's three line up, Temple speaks and everyone comes for Temple. And then there's me and an OT usually, um, you know, another OD that's speaking. Um, and a lot of times they'll have me come just to, just to talk about autism works now. And just like what you and I are talking about, how do you, how do you encourage and give your uh, child the skill set in order to get a job? And um, she talks about volunteer jobs, but says our kids have to start a lot younger. And it's true. We can't have them volunteering at 22. That's where we're making the problem. That's where the issue is. We shouldn't be going, okay, now they're 22. They need to volunteer. No, no, no. They need to be volunteering when they're in middle school. Middle school. So they're comfortable with a job. They're comfortable going to a setting with other people. Comfortable figuring out how to get there when they're in a high school setting and volunteering. Learning what what is expected from you in a job. So that when they're 22, they're not at the volunteer uh, area, if you will. They're at a, I need a real job that equates to a paycheck. But she also says, give them jobs in the home. And I, and I couldn't agree with her more. They need to have jobs in the home. You know, a lot of times our kids are coddled and babied. And, oh, because he has a disability, he doesn't have to take out the trash or do his laundry or uh, make his bed or clean his room. No, because he has a disability, he has to take out the lawn, uh, take out the trash, do his laundry and make his bed. We need to be teaching the very same expected skill sets that we would of our neurotypical children of a child, of a child with a disability. We're not doing him any favors by coddling him. Absolutely. And it teaches that level of responsibility and even just all the little sub skills, you know, just, um, following instructions, paying attention, you know, executive function, you know, ordering, sequencing, everything, you know, it, it really starts to build on those foundational skills. And I really think it all starts at home base. Like that's where it happens. Um, that's and right. That, yeah, where we need to start. That's right. That's right. So in an essence, what the parents can do for the younger children is begin to see and support the idea or the vision, I call it, of the child working, just like they do of their other kids. And don't tell me that you're not looking at your, third, your, your, your five-year-old and going, boy, he's really fast and he's really good with his hands and he loves to build things, but he's going to be like an architect or something. It, you can't help but do it with your children. But we're not doing it with our kids with autism. And that's where we have to see them differently. It's up to the parent to begin to view the child through different eyes. And not eyes of, 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 uh, of feeling sorry for the child or feeling bad that he's got a disability. But for, for, through eyes that say, how am I going to help him to be the best he can be and the biggest contributor he can be and, ha and have him have a happy successful quality of life because parents are not doing that no i love it i honestly could not agree anymore that was just very well said um let's head over we've got five rapid fire questions before we finish off uh this conversation today so yeah, okay, okay. Number one number one what is one habit that parents can implement today ask don't tell Ask a question. Don't tell your child. Put your backpack over there. Get out your homework. Say, where does your backpack belong? What are you supposed to be doing now? Stimulate the brain. Excellent. Excellent. Number two, is there something that people never ask you that you wish they did? Hmm. I like that you asked me how I started my journey and you asked me a much more personal question of why I felt that I did the work I do. Very few people do go there with me and I had a pretty troubling beginning and I really do believe that that's why I do the work I do now. And there are very few people that ask me that question. Mm. They, they want to start with the education piece and my credentials and, you know, which I have a lot of, 
but they don't go back to that piece of like, what is, what is that part of me that resonates with individuals with autism? Well, now it's out there to the world. Yeah, now it's out. <laughs> <laughs> All I right. love yeah. Number three, what book, other than your two amazing books, what, what book would you recommend that all parents read? Well, I, there's two. I love Temple Grandin's Thinking in Pictures. I, I don't think it gets any better than that. I think that's, that's a brilliant book. I think it's her first book, actually. And the other one would be Doidge's book, um, The Brain That Changes Itself. Excellent. Number four, what is one of your unfinished bucket list items? Oh, well, speaking at Harvard was one of them, and now I'm going to cross that one off because that's like pinch me. I'm going to Harvard, <laughs> you know. It's like, whoa, that's great. I mean, if, I, if somebody said that to me 10 years ago, you're going to be talking about movement and music and kids with autism and cognition at Harvard. I go, you're crazy. <laughs> you are crazy. You are crazy. But um, and but here it is coming right around the corner. A couple of weeks, Allie and I'll be there doing it. And they gave us twenty minutes for a lecture and an hour workshop. So we're going to get to get these all these people up dancing and moving to music. It's going to be amazing. We're so bit, we're excited about that. Let's see. I would say probably on a much more humanitarian level, um, I've been wanting to go to Africa for a long time africa needs us very badly and that would probably be that's the next thing on my bucket list is africa excellent number five if you could only offer one piece of advice to parents what would it be assume intelligence beautiful so important and that's such a strong message too mm -hmm, mm -hmm. okay yeah well, I would love to know where our listeners can find out more about you. Um, where can they access all the information that you have put out there into the world? Oh, well, I have so many websites. That's, I'm like, <laughs> why do I have so many websites? Okay, so I have autismmovementtherapy.org, which is the movement and music program. And then I have autismworksnow.org, which is the work program. And now we have a new gloriouspies.org, which is all about the actual work program that was developed for the Autism Works Now. So we have three websites. Incredible. Awesome. You have done so much for the autism community, and I am so incredibly grateful that you are just putting all this work, literally, like I said, year after year, you're putting this work out there into the world and you're relentless. It's amazing and very inspiring. Um, and I'm so incredibly grateful that you have given me the time to have this conversation with you. And, um, yeah, and, and hopefully our listeners will leave this um, really empowered, feeling empowered um, in terms of appreciating the arts and how music and movement can really benefit their child at that neurological level um, and also what they can do heading into the workforce. So thank you. It has been an absolute honour. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. I always love to be able to, to talk about it because the more families we can reach and the more individuals with autism that we can reach, the more we can help change their lives. Awesome. Thank you so much, Joanne. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys, for listening. I really hope you got some value out of today's conversation. Now, I would love to connect with you. I am really active over on Instagram and Facebook, so I'd love it if you came over and you said hi. All you have to do is search Homebase Hope and you will find me there. Now, if you don't know already, I am a lover of essential oils and a doTERRA wellness advocate. I really believe in the value of essential oils. And if this is something that you would like to explore and learn how you can use them in your family's life, then please get in touch. I would love to connect with you. And also, if you head over to Homebase Hope website, so that's homebasehope.com.au, I have created lots of visuals and social stories. So visuals in terms of first then, choice boards, visual schedules for toileting, getting ready in the morning. I've done all the hard work for you. Um, these are printables that are available on the, on the website so you can access today. Finally, if you love this fortnightly injection of information, please subscribe to the podcast. 
all you have to do is head to iTunes and hit the subscribe button. And every fortnight, you will get an instant notification of the latest interview. If you do like the show, please jump on iTunes and leave a five-star review so more people can discover this podcast and so we can inspire positive change for more people living on the spectrum. You can access all of the show notes and other episodes at homebasehope.com.au. And until next time, guys, I encourage you to open your mind, respect the differences, and above all, believe that you can make a difference from home base. See you soon, guys. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.